from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And hello out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you have never heard of. Joining me in studio, they are the best talent for the best political talk show you've never heard of. Across the table from me, he is the former Undersecretary for Commerce for International Trade. He is the man that we know as the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Joining us from a undisclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the uh, journalist and author of such great books as Politics on the Rocks. He, he is the one we know as Rich Rabino. Hello, Rich. Hello, Justin. And, of course, in the cage. Today, actually, we've got uh, our very distinguished host here at Podcast Village and Studio A, Charlie Bernie running the board, which is pretty awesome. Always good to have uh, the purveyor of good podcasts behind the board. And, of course, we've got Eric Thomas, our producer, doing producer-type stuff. Uh, lots to talk about. Let, let's start on the economy. That seems to be gaining a lot of concern, at least inside the Beltway and inside economic circles. It's um, it's becoming more and more apparent that uh, although the president may be taking edible cookies of questionable substances, every other economist in the country is now looking at this and saying, look, uh, we're not encouraging that there be some sort of recession, but the indicators are there. This, on top of the fact that the rumor going around Washington has been that they, there is concern in the White House that the economy could slow down, even go into the R word recession between now, sometime between now and election time 2020. Uh, that was kind of hyped up today when the president mentioned during a presser uh, with the Romanian president inside the Oval Office, not within. Uh, the past couple hours of us recording this, where he did mention the fact that he was, in fact, considering a personal income tax cut again, which has got several people now speculating that he's starting to realize that there might be some concern. Uh, This after uh, last, since the last time we recorded, there was a large scale sell off of stocks, worst week, I guess, in, in the year, uh, worst percentage in several years, drop in the Dow. It is It has been a little bit nerve-wracking for economists and those in politics here inside the Beltway. Alan Moore, uh, you follow this stuff very closely. Let's let's just talk about the, the generalities of this. You know, we, we talked last uh, a couple of broadcasts ago about the sensitivity of our economy right now, but it, it just seems that with uh, with the bond with the bond yield inversion that we're dealing with, two year bonds are now uh, offering larger yields than the ten and twenty year bonds. That seems to be almost a a red flare that some sort of economic slowdown might be on the horizon sooner rather than later. Is that a concern? Well, that is one of the indicators that most economies look at, uh, most economists look at. Um, It is often, that that kind of inversion is often present, often present, not always, 
uh, when there's a recession. And in, and just because you have that for a short period of time doesn't mean you will necessarily have a recession. The The economy, the, the fundamentals of the economy continue to be quite good. You look at the unemployment rate and you look at and you look at the GDP and the continuing growth, it's been very extended, very long, but it continues. Um, it was it was slow and steady during during the Obama administration. It it took a little it got a bump in the first year and a half, two years of of the Trump administration. It's been uh, moving up and down since then, although from the beginning of the uh, the Trump administration, um, most indicators are up significantly more than anyone thought they would be. Uh, this volatility in the stock market that you saw that, that we've seen both in December and then in the last couple of weeks is volatility. And, and, but, Alan, you, you mentioned the word fundamentals of our economy. And and, and I, I, I still am trying to get my arms wrapped around when, you know, because we hear Kellyanne Conway say that. We've heard uh, Kudlow say it. We've heard every everybody in the administration say it's the not just the administration. The it's not. This isn't administration line. Most economists would agree with this. Uh, Most uh, economists who are thinking about a recession are talking about twenty twenty one. We're not even into twenty twenty yet. So if you're by twenty twenty one, it could happen sooner. I'm, I'm just saying that 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 most economists are not at the point of saying, "Oh my gosh, a recession is right around the corner," um, or "Oh my gosh, bond rates are 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 suggesting a, a recession is right around the corner." Economists look at the very big picture, and and. Anybody who says, and I've been, a, I've certainly been a critical of this president's uh, trade policy. I don't like the way he's dealt with with China because he's isolated America versus China. But the, the, the and the volatility of the stock market recently appears to be partly connected to what's going on with China. But that's not going to cause a recession. What's, what will what? cause a recession is bigger, broader indicators, which continue to be pretty strong. But, you know, Dan Lipner, who is joining us from his, wow, his back porch somewhere in southern Maryland. Dan Lipner, when, when we talk about these economic indicators, uh, you know, I, I look at the reports out of several media outlets, including... I saw one out of the Wall Street Journal the other day that said three out of four uh, economists believe that are so that in a, in a poll conducted by the National Association of Business Economics, three out of four economists believe that you know by 2021, but many believe that this could happen before even election day 2020. Are, is the mixed messages something to be concerned about coming out of the White House regarding the economy saying, hey, it's strong, don't worry about it, but we have a president now talking about new tax cuts to uh, almost prime a pump, if you will? Uh, well, yeah, the the president um, is indeed sending mixed messages, and I genuinely feel bad for anyone in this administration that has to speak for this president before the president promptly changes his mind. Uh, this past weekend, uh, the administration was talking about everything's fine. We're not really looking into it. It's not really a thing. And much to my surprise, when I turned on the radio this afternoon, uh, only to catch the president himself saying, 
well, you know, we are looking at these tax cuts and we need the Fed to make these changes. And <laughs> so it it, it it kind of caught me off guard that uh, the mixed messages from the White House itself um, is a problem. And seemingly this president doesn't understand how the economy works. That said, um, and I, I, I may be stepping on a point of Allen's, um, it, things should be taken with a grain of salt. I am amongst those who think the there there is a correction coming, and I just don't know what it is. Uh, however, it is worth noting that the the joke in economic circles is economists have have successfully predicted fifteen of the last three recessions. So right. they, they, they frequently uh, o- overstate indicators. Um, that said, the fact of the matter is, from at least my perspective, is the U.S. economy is in as good a shape because the rest of the world's economics is not. That makes so, sense. And, and, and but Rich, said, Rich Rubino, but, but nothing can be completely immune from the rest. Right, Rich Rubino. Dan brings up a good a, a good point here, where you know. The indicators I would be concerned about would be the similar indicators that we saw back in, let's say, September uh, or like late summer, early fall 2008 going into 2009, uh, where we saw foreclosures. We saw a lot of junk money floating around. Uh, we saw the failure of uh, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns. It, it was before that. The, your, your question is already mis- misstating the facts of the past. What's that? The, 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 the housing market was already well overheated and foreclosures were already at record highs. So the signs of the bubble and the the stresses on the economy for something being out of whack were already there. Once Lehman failed, that was just the chickens coming home to roost. That was But we also I mean we also had the, the potential but we also had the potential failure of AIG. I mean we go into it, but the, you know those are the indicators that I would say that would be of dire concern. Does the White House actually have a point in saying that, hey, you know, all these red flags about this economic uh, slowdown coming, it's not going to come to a grinding halt. Quit worrying about it. I got this under control. I mean, it, it, to me, it sounds like the, the White House actually might have a point on this one, Rich. Am I wrong? Yeah, no. Yeah, no, I think you. I think they probably do. But I also think that the president is trying to he's basically posturing. Um, he's saying that he what, basically what he's trying to do when he talks about saying that the you know the Fed should raise interest rates, talking about quantitative easing. What he wants to do, I think, is that if we are in a recession, which is just two two quarters of economic gro- of negative economic growth by the time of the election, he wants to be able to blame it on somebody. And I think he wants to be able to say that you know I propose this, I propose that. Um, however, the Federal Reserve basically ruined the economy by doing that because he knows I think certainly that you know this is the one thing he has in terms of going for reelection in 2020. Is the economy? I mean, you know, if it's about likability, he's going to lose. If it's about most other issues, he's going to lose. But there are a lot of people, a lot of wealthy people, who I think aren't necessarily, you know, vocal about it. They're not explicit about it, but they're going to vote for the president because they're looking at their own four hundred one k's. They're looking at their own personal. Oh, but Rich, hold, hold on. Let me let me jump in because you may you mentioned something that uh, that's very interesting to me. You mentioned the fact that he wants somebody to blame. Do, do yeah. you believe that the American electorate in 2020 is going to buy in and support the president on his claim that, you know what, this is not my fault. You go look at the Fed. You go look at China. You go look at uh, yeah. you know the banks that weren't putting money and circulating money. Not my fault. Are the American voters going to buy it? 
Well, I mean, the American voters is obviously a broad swath of people, and they're not, you know, certainly a monolith. But I think that, you know, historically, the answer is no. Um, you know, every, you know, every presidents that are elected during a recession or during that are trying going for re-election during a pre- recession or a, re- or a depression, be it, you know, certainly Hoover in '32 or, you know, Jimmy Carter in 1980. Usually, the president gets some of the blame by the broad swath of the electorate, including in some cases the base supporters who had supported him. For example, I think a lot of farmers who support him in places like Iowa. Um, it's very easy for the Democrats now to basically get to his get to his right, I guess, on the, on the issues of trade and say that this was partly because of the president's trade war in China has failed, and it's failed you specifically. And, you know, if you believe them, and I do, that most voters vote based on their economic interests versus some sort of a grand ideology, then President Trump is certainly, is certainly in trouble. I mean, um, historically, though, you know, William McKinley in 1900, that was the last time or he, that was the last time a president up for re-election during a recession was 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 actually re-elected. So it's very hard for him to do for that. It's very hard for him to necessarily say that they're going to blame somebody. That they're going to blame somebody else. But there might be a lot of members of his base who aren't necessarily farmers who are saying, yeah, you know, if we do, if we had done exactly what the president proposed, and the Federal Reserve hadn't done anything, to, hadn't hadn't raised interest rates, hadn't done this, hadn't done that, then the economy would be in a lot better shape. The problem, of course, is that the chairman of the Federal Reserve was nominated by Donald Trump, so that, that goes against perhaps his decision-making. It's very easy for the Democrats to say, well, why then didn't you nominate somebody else that's more liking, that's more liking to, your, um, to, your, to your economic way of thinking? Rich, so it can, definitely, it can definitely hurt him. Rich, yep. Rich are, you, are, you, are you saying that Donald Trump might be a modern-day Herbert Hoover? No, not at all. I'm saying that I'm just giving that as an example. Okay. That's an okay. I don't think the situation is anything like what's happening in 1932. I'm just saying this is not an archetype of that. Right. I'm saying though, certainly in 1932, you know, Herbert Hoover didn't necessarily take the blame for the, for the economic depression that was that was occurring that occurred during right. his administration. But the American people certainly looked to the person in the White House and they said, "This is you know, this is the this is the person this is the person responsible for the, responsible for the econo- for the um you know right. for the economic slowdown or for the depression." And gotcha. I think. In Trump's case, this is a lot. This is going to be, you know, this is not going to be anything near what happened to Herbert Hoover. But right. I do think people are going to look at it. Right. Um, in 1992, for another example, George H. W. Bush running for re-election, the economy was actually slightly improving. And the next quarter after his re-election showed that the economy was slightly improving, but people didn't feel it that on the micro well, level. Well, the me, macro level was showing. I want to jump though. in real quick here, real quick, because I want to go to Alan Moore. Real, but Alan, before I go to your comment, I, I do want to ask a question that. That Dan brought up, uh, we're seeing slowdowns worldwide. I mean, the, the European economies are starting to uh, put the brakes on Asian trading partners. Uh, even Canada has mentioned that there might be a little bit of a slowdown in their economy, which has been running strong. Uh, is Donald Trump actually, could Donald Trump come out being a hero by isolating our economy from the rest of the global economy? No, no. he, as, as Dan said, um, the, these global forces are, are impossible to, uh, to keep ourselves uh, separate from. Um, keep your eye on Germany. Uh, Germany is, uh, is one quarter short of being officially technically in a recession. Uh, Germany is the cornerstone of the European economy. Um, where Germany goes, so goes uh, Europe. Um, it, the problem right now in the world is is there's they're 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 sort of stagnant. They're borderline recession, um, and you the U.S. consumer 
crazy as it is, is keep is propping up the U.S. economy and some of these other economies. Is, in, is that in, true? Including though? the Chinese. It is true. It is true. We are so much bigger than than other than than other economies that everybody needs to sell into America. You can think of German cars um, and a lot of other uh, high tech ma, uh, machinery that that we we take from Germany. Um, the, so the thing about but let's go to the politics here the president what is foundational to him and he knows it is the economy so where the economy goes as, as rich has said as dan was suggesting so goes the election most of the time now mm-hmm. this president realizes that he's had a good run if if he's honest with himself or just ignorant um uh, Take your pick. Um, he knows that he was one lucky guy. That he came in at a time when we when, when we were. When is this president honest? When when we were when we well he may just be ignorant, right? And he thinks that actually that he actually did this. So so he may not be being dishonest. He might just be stupid. Okay. Right. So uh, having said that. Um, he and I think part of him really does believe that he has done this great stuff that the tax cut that he gave is in his words um, and some of the deregulation the, the deregulatory stuff he he's he can talk about guns he can talk about uh, abortion um, there, there, there he can talk about immigrants he can talk about issues that he knows will feed his base but he also knows and understands that foundational to his political success is a strong economy. So he is already setting up the Fed f- uh, to to take the fall for for being very cautious but, yeah, but, and but careful Alan, on, quick, on interest rates. But, He's not going to acknowledge anything on on uh, on the deficit, and he realizes. But the president he, makes he, comments that that say, and he said over the weekend that uh, we have a uh, a very rich. Uh, consumer base. He said, yes. our consumers are rich. I gave a tremendous tax cut, and they're loaded up with money. Which yet, 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 seventy-five yeah, percent of Americans get seventy-five percent. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Dan, Dan, wait. Seventy-five percent of Americans today now go paycheck to paycheck. So, I mean, is. Does he really believe that the American electorate is going to drink this bathwater? Is well, the bigger question. No, he, it, it, it has been drinking, okay? It has been taking on consumer debt. Um, it's, it's paycheck to paycheck plus adding to your credit cards. So, so that's, that's the engine. Um, and, uh, but, but it doesn't mean it's an auto, that, it, that it's immune to what's going on in the economy. As interest rates rise, there are going to be some layoffs. U.S. Steel has announced uh, it's going to they're lay shutting, off. They're laying uh, off a good in, amount in, in Michigan. In, in, a big, in its biggest plant in, uh, in, in Michigan. Um, I mean, these Wait. things, these, the, you know, that doesn't mean that's the trend. It just, it's just this reminder that there's some fragility out there that, that economists are recognizing and, and talking about. The president's trying to get out front of that. Right. And, and A, by A, having, having a scapegoat, that's just never going to work, I don't think. But also talking about, gee, maybe we need an, another tax cut because, good gosh, 
we who cares about the deficit and 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 there's a couple of but tax Alan, there ideas, are ideas but there are economists are floating right now, around out there but there are economists right now that are that are out there stating that you know the the first trump tax cut actually did damage to the federal government's ability to minimize spending to uh our deficit increased it put more pressure on on uh, government subsidy programs and now he's talking about a second round of tax cuts. Could this be yep. a round of tax cuts unless it directly affects and shows benefit to the average American middle class uh, spender that currently is living paycheck to paycheck? Does this... Does is this a is this a panic move almost? Well, yes, it, it's a it, panic move. And it, to be clear, the the, the paycheck is it, it's a paycheck tax cut. So it's by definition, it's going directly to the to the tax the the excuse me the cash strapped consumers. However, there's not that much disposable income to go around even with that. So while it might prime the economy a bit, it, he. Trump has really tied the government's hands on a on a bunch of tools because of all the nonsense he's gone through. Although, you know, from a political standpoint, this is something that actually I think that the Democrats will it's, you know, um, I think that a lot of Democrats will potentially support because it's more or less. I, ta I mean, it, you know, it's a pay the payroll tax cut. I guess it's for everybody, essentially. But this is something, for example, go back to 2003. You know, Bob Graham running for the Democratic presidential nomination, this was the flagship issue of his campaign. And they asked him why he was said why he wanted, for example, a payroll tax cut. And he said specifically because George W. Bush, his tax cut was on his tax cut was on dividends, which which essentially affected, you know, the top two percent of the country. This is something that's going to affect the that's going to affect, you know, the bottom ninety eight percent of the country. It's going to essentially affect everybody. So he sees it as more or less as a stimulant. And I think that a lot of Democrats, I mean, even, you know, this has always been, this is kind of a Democratic, it's like, it's like cutting property taxes, something the Democrat would be for, whereas Republican would be more likely to support an income, to support different types of tax cuts. But this is something that's specifically targeted, and it's going to be targeted to a lot of those voters in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa who are kind of, who, are, who have supported them the last time around, but don't, it won't necessarily maybe right. see the economic situations where they want to see them come November of 2020. Yeah, but Dan Lipner, I mean, not to defend the, the president's tactics on this, but you know, if he does implement a a payroll-based tax cut, which is in fact money back into the pockets of the middle-class consumers, and it's not as uh, corporate as his first round of tax cuts. Uh, that does circulate money back in the economy. If I've got another 500 bucks in my paycheck, uh, I'm going to use that to possibly buy. How much money that, do you make weekly for a tax cut to get you 500 bucks back in your paycheck? Well, I, I'm, I'm just throwing out a number. It's a rhetorical <laughs> number. I mean, whether it's 50, whether it's 100, whether it's 500, the reality is if there's a tax cut, that money's going to circulate back into, it might allow me to buy that refrigerator. It might have the ripple effect of me, uh, you know, going to that new restaurant, which pays people, which puts money back into the economy. Uh, is there a, it almost seems like uh, the president might be falling into a good idea almost on accident. No, so oh, let me put put on my political <laughs> consultant cap here. If I'm the if uh, if I'm advising the Democratic leadership in the House, 
when the president says a temporary payroll tax cut to put some more money in the economy if things go south, I am absolutely going to say yes, because I also know that in actuality, all that's going to do is mitigate some of the pain that, that occurs. It's not going to turn the economy as a whole. It's not large enough. It's not, it's not enough of a stimulus to really get things going. And let's remember, most of the consumer economy products that we buy, with the exception of the things like restaurants, as, uh, but ac actual goods are produced in other places. So the rest of the global economy, which is already beginning to slow down, that might mitigate it a bit. And once your your brother, your sister, your husband, or your wife gets laid off, it'll make it slightly less painful for the pain that occurs. Right. But at the end of the day, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and the rest of the Democratic Party is going to be able to say, look, we helped you out, <laughs> but you still screwed up the Obama economy. This is still your fault. <laughs> but all right, Alan, Alan, I'm going to give you the last word. We've got about three minutes left in this segment. But I noticed that you chuckled when I said that it might have been a good idea that kind of fell into oh, oh. by accident. Yeah, so we uh, in, during the Obama administration, uh, in in part of their effort to recover from from the real recession, the great big recession, which no which no one is talking about now. Nobody is saying we're on the verge of a recession like the one we had in two thousand seven, eight, and nine. Um, but recession nonetheless, um, we have them. Um, we, and we haven't had one in a long time. Um, it, part of part of the response to that was a payroll tax cut. Now, when you do a payroll tax cut, remember, you're doing it because most people in America pay less in income tax than they do in payroll taxes. And the payroll taxes are for Social Security and Medicare. So if you want to get money into the pockets of lower middle income people, um, uh, then the payroll tax is the way to go. The problem is that when you take money from the payroll tax, that means that Social, Security Social Security and Medicare are going, to, which both have significant long-term financial challenges, will have an even bigger one. So you have to decide how are you going to deal with that? There's been some talk of taking the 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 proceeds, if you will, from the president's tariffs on China. So this is almost Rob Peter and, and to maybe, screw Paul. It's always <laughs> Rob Peter to, to you know screw pay whatever. Um, it, it it's what you do, or you just add to the deficit. You say, okay, they've we're already done take, that. We're going to take twenty billion dollars, fifty billion dollars from Social Security and Medicare, but we're going to in we're going to borrow additional money to offset that amount, but we're going to distribute it via a payroll tax do, cut. Do 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 traditional Tea Party fiscal hawk conservatives back this tax cut if it does impact? The deficit, and it does, in fact, in, impact the debt. Who knows anymore? Well, there was a time when there were people this who worried been, this about that. This would have thrown the Tea Party out a window. There would have, it was a time when people worried about that. They don't seem to worry about that. The Democrats don't seem to worry, although they want to take that money and, and, and give free college, Medicare for all, um, and—, and uh, and get rid of all student debt. So it's it's when people are when Republicans are willing to spend more money somehow or other, the Democrats are saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, we got some ideas on how best to spend it. Oh, we're going to let that be the last word. Uh, <clears throat> when we come back, uh, we are going to talk about 
the fiasco or the strong stance that was taken by Israel in not letting two Democratic members of Congress into Israel. It created all kinds of mess. But we're going to talk about that when we come back. This is Backroom Politics. Stay with us. Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. 
Hey, we're back. It is a great episode that we've got going here. Talking about the economy, and that's gotten everybody fired up. The other episode that's gotten everybody fired up here inside the Beltway is, in case you didn't know it, uh, there was a slight little rift between uh, part of the squad. Uh, For those who don't know who the squad is, the squad is uh, four freshman Democratic members of Congress uh, which include uh, uh, Congresswoman Orazio Cortez from New York. Um, I forget the uh, Congresswoman Presley from, from Massachusetts. Presley from Massachusetts. Thank you. Uh, and then the two that we're going to talk about, uh, Eliana Omar and Rashida Tlaib, um, both Muslim, both uh, freshman members of Congress, both duly member, duly elected members of Congress. Uh, here's what happened. So. Uh, the Congress, Congresswoman Omar and Congresswoman Tlaib were denied entry into Israel amid, uh, according to Israeli officials, amid concerns that they were going in order to meet with members of uh, Palestine, uh, the Palestinian Authority and Palestinian-led protests and boycotts that are currently going on against uh, the Israeli government in Tel Aviv. The this was some in some Democratic view, this was provoked by comments by the president when he found out they were going. The president uh, may had alluded to comments that he they should not be allowed entry, which uh, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu then took upon himself to say, "Yep, you're right. You're not welcome here." Uh President Trump is believed to have taken part in this in discussions between either his administration or directly with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, it was a, an edict that was rescinded by the Israeli government with conditions, and at which point uh, Congresswoman Tlaib, who was legitimately going to Palestine in part, to meet with her grandmother, who lives in occupied Palestinian territory, uh, and, and uh, Congressman Omar was going to join her. Uh, when she saw the conditions, her grandmother and her basically said, you know what, uh, don't sell yourself out, it's not worth it, and they refused to go. Now, the argument— I don't think it was rescinded for Omar just to leave. It was. Uh, I it thought was, it, was, it was. It was, it was humanitarian it was reasons for Tlaib. for to for Tlaib to visit her grandmother. I think it was, yep. but the restrictions were so strong that she refused. Uh, but the 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 issue is now the, the other question. The other question that's come up uh, in, on the flip side of this is that uh, just literally days before the arrival, the planned arrival of uh, Congresswoman Tlaib and Congresswoman Omar. There was, in fact, a congressional delegation that was in Israel visiting with the Israeli government, uh, and they could have gone on this con- on this congressional delegation. Apparently, they refused and wanted to go on their own, specifically to go also into Palestine. Uh, critics of the squad and Republican officials have been saying that uh, this was done more as a uh, almost as a as as, as a, uh, a photo op 
or a, uh, a, a, a almost as a uh, uh, creating their own drama situation. That being said, uh, Alan Moore, you know, we've heard the stories coming out of the left. We've heard the stories coming out of the right. We've even heard the stories coming out of Tel Aviv. You know, where is, you know, we, I've always said that, you know, you've heard the left, you've heard the right, somewhere in the middle is the truth. Where is the middle and what is the truth? Okay, so it, it, it here's what, uh, I, I think what the Israelis should have done was to say to these two women, yes, you can come. They're members of Congress. They chose not to do that. They had every right to choose not to do that. Uh, most countries, including the United States, deny admission all the time, deny visas all the time to people, some of whom are members of legislatures, some of whom are writers, thinkers, journalists, um, uh, politicians. Um, and, and so the U.S. does it. Israel does it. Two years ago, Israel toughened up its laws even to say— we we reserve the right to deny admission. Um, it was kind of redundant because they already could have to people who are proposing um, boycotts uh, or or other economic sanctions against Israel, which is something that these two members of our Congress are part of the so-called BDS movement, which which is which is boycott, disinvestment and sanctions. It's big in Europe. It's it occurs on some U.S. college campuses. There's there's a handful of of people in the Congress who are supporting the so-called BDS movement that there is every indication that these two wanted to go spend most of their time um, with with Palestinians and, and take advantage of their platform to to talk about the BDS movement. I think Israel should have let them in and let them sort of bury themselves by overdoing it. Um, and uh, but but they they chose as they have the right to do not to. The fact that the president tweeted, don't do it suggests to me, one, that we weren't talking to them, that the president just got out in front. It made Netanyahu look weaker when he said, nope, you can't come in, um, but that's our president who who, 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 you don't who see gets that out as there. A, you, I mean, you, you see that as a total coincidence that Trump kind of went out there well, on Twitter I, and said, I, I wouldn't let him in, and I Bibi think Netanyahu I think, took that as, I think oh, I should really do that. No, no, no. I think it wasn't helpful. I, don't, I think the Israelis on their own might well have decided not to let them in based on the law of two years ago and based on the threat that this whole BDS movement poses. Again, I think they should have let him in. I don't know whether how how much Netanyahu, it, who's who's up for election again in a couple of months, remember, who's got his um, own problems, who's got big problems. I don't know how to to what. We're extent. not even sure if he's not even going to be in jail by the time. You know, he I don't. Gets. I don't. You know, there are people who say, "Oh, he he he's the puppet for for President Trump." I I don't think that we know that at all. I don't. Right. I don't know what was going on in his thinking. What happened yeah. then when they they denied? The it and then the request was made right. on humanitarian grounds and and Congresswoman Talib said, "I would like to visit my grandmother and I'll, I'll I'll abide by any restrictions you want me to," and they came back and said, "Okay, you can come in, but we do have need you to agree that you're not going to talk about this." And then she had second thoughts. So well, it was Omar she, that it was Omar that said, "quote." 
Uh, we cannot let Trump and Netanyahu succeed in hiding the cruel reality of the occup of the occupation for us. Which, uh, as much as you want to see your grandmother, Trump is trying to pit Muslims against Jews. Yeah, yeah, well, D Dan, as as Alan was talking, you were shaking your head. No, you disagree with Alan. So I think the Israeli government was going to let both uh, Tlaib and Omar in, in part because for Alan's correct point that. Uh, while I, I am supportive of the squad's existence, um, they, they, they've, they've annoyed me a great deal. Um, they've annoyed a lot of people, Dan. It, 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 it's, it's also worth, and, and my fellow Democrat who frequently appears on the show, Sharmila, has also been uh, annoyed by the squad. Her words, not mine. Um, as far as the... <laughs> Uh, sorry, this this actually uh, fosters a great deal of rage. So let me point out one of the many horrendous things that this president has said. Dan, Dan, either Dan, loud Dan hold speed. on, hold on, Dan. No, no, this take is a breath. Take a breath. The president Usa. said that the that the biggest winner in this was Talib's grandmother, so she wouldn't have to see her granddaughter. My God, does this man have no decency? What a truly vile thing to say. Beyond that, any future U.S. aid to Israel, and let's be clear, Israel is the largest by far recipient of U.S. aid, though predominantly in military aid, from the United States. No other country comes anywhere close. Egypt is out there, but not anywhere near what Israel is. That is going to be attached to every new U.S. assistance package to Israel saying that you may not prohibit a U.S. government official from coming into your country to see how the money is being spent. That is absolutely going to be a thing. So much so that APAC, hardly a liberal <laughs> Jewish organization, also said this was an unwise thing that the Israeli government did. Now, APAC, their entire goal in life is to make sure that the United States maintains a strong support for Israel. Right. For APAC to split with the conservative government of Israel is huge. I mean, it, Richard, being a very dumb yep. thing that was done and. The, the, the fact that Netanyahu is also devoid of spine, showing anything resembling political courage, right? Something that he seemingly had in his past, right? Uh, I believe he was an Israeli commando, but that apparently any sign of bravery is now in his past. So, um, it is a horrible thing that was done, and for the president to have done it the way he did is absolutely horrendous. I mean, Richard Bino. Dan brings up a, a, a big point here. I mean, the APAC folks, uh, which for those who don't know, uh, APAC is the American-Israeli Political Action Committee? No, no. Public yeah. Affairs Committee. Public Affairs Committee, thank they're, you. They're not a PAC. They're not a PAC. I'm sorry. It's a Public Affairs Committee. Very strong, strong uh, voice for... Not just Jews, but conservative Jews. They have been long for Israel. For Israel, you don't you don't believe for conservative 
uh, Jews here in the in America as no, well? No, no, it, not until the existence of J Street, which is also a pro-Israel uh, yep. U.S. Right. organization uh, that supports Israel, that actually believes that you know the Palestinians might actually have a bit of a legitimate argument about their treatment from right. the from the Israelis for the uh, Palestinian Authority. Um, but for APAC, still, uh, APAC's position has always been to support Israel. Period. Right. But yes. they've yes. also been a large scale supporter of the Trump administration's position with Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, Richard, Again, B- incorrect. Yep. They, they are a supporter of who, whoever is in office in Israel. What is occurring right now is the fact that, it, that, that Bibi has been in power as long as he has. Is incidental. APAC would be supporting. They supported Ehud Barak. Right, but, uh, they, they they support whoever is in power. Right, but Dan, Rich, I'll come back yeah, to you. No, but Dan, yeah. let me stay with you on this because APAC plays a, a real big a, a real big piece in this. For them to say, "Whoa, Trump and Netanyahu went over the top." No, they didn't say Trump. They said the Israeli government should have let them in. They. They at, at at no point they are not critical of Trump. I don't think so. A- APAC doesn't t- doesn't throw punches at people who support Israel. They only throws punches if there is a challenge. So I suspect APAC has taken positions against uh, both Omar and Talib for their boycott. So explain Israel to me. Yeah, here's my, here's my take on. Position. Hold on, Rich. Rich, go, go ahead because I, I, I want to ask Dan. Uh, Another question, and and just stand by for me. Dan, I want to ask you, APAC itself, could it be said that APAC itself has been a a wide-scale backer of Trump and his position on Israel? Is that accurate? No. No. They are a a supporter. So the, the negligible things that Trump has done, so the... Annexation of the Golan Heights, which is ridiculous, um, and an absolute violation of international law. The moving of the embassy? I'm sorry? The moving of the embassy? And the moving of the embassy, which has been something that's been tongue-in-cheek for decades, literally decades. So the official U.S. embassy prior to the moving to the embassy to Jerusalem was in Tel Aviv. And for decades— there was the official U.S. embassy was in Tel Aviv, and there was a consulate in Jerusalem. However, the embassy is traditionally, as far as I know, as in, in international circles and in international, it, it it's always in the nation's capital because Jerusalem is been been open for question as far as who the rightful owners of uh, Jerusalem are. The United States has basically been uh, holding the line tongue in cheek, saying that, yes, while we have a building that is our consulate in Jerusalem, the official, the, the building that had the official title of the U.S. Embassy was always in Tel Aviv. Trump basically removed that dog and pony show from the equation entirely. Um, Right. You could argue as far as the the, the quality and what the how meaningful that was, but it wasn't really a major thing. Right, Rich Rubino, more, more symbolic in its importance. Yeah, it, I, I can see that. Rich Rubino, though, uh, this is. I mean, I mean, is this 
situation where, I mean, take out the fact that they are uh, Muslims, that they were going to uh, occupy territory. Take all that aside. The fact that the Israeli government denied entry to two seated members of the United States Congress, to me, says that this is a really bad optic for uh, for the Israeli government. Does this put any open pressure on uh, the minority in the Knesset or opposition uh, to Bibi Netanyahu's party coming up in the upcoming elections? Did this actually hurt Netanyahu's chances for re-election? Uh, I don't know about Netanyahu specifically his chances for re-election, but certainly there's there's certainly labor and there's certainly more liberal um, political parties in the Knesset. But I wanted to say though, in terms of apex, in terms of what this what this actually may have been, kind of um, I guess counterintuitive actually for specifically President Trump and Bibi Netanyahu is that now it's kind of been exposed. There's a lot more coverage, I'm sure, right now of the conditions inside Gaza and the West Bank than there would have been had they been allowed to make the trip. It probably would have been a relatively minor story in the news, and then it would have eventually um, left. You know, it's interesting, though, in terms of apex influence, I just want to say something about it. When you talk about conservative Jews or conservative um, Likud party, specifically in Israel, um, the United States position, generally speaking, APEC does not necessarily seen as a Republican organization. You have Nancy Pelosi speak. You have Steve Grossman, um, who was who both the chairman of the Massachusetts Democratic Party and the co-chairman of the National Democratic Party, was a huge, was a huge um, and was once the chairman, I believe, of APEC. So it's both Democrats and Republicans. But, you know, they've actually had, they've actually had they're actually, their influence has actually worked against specific Republicans. The perfect example of this would be Paul Finley in 1982. He was a Republican who spoke, who spoke, about the, who spoke um, somewhat glowingly about the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So as a result of that, um, Dick Durbin actually was running for United States Congress in Springfield, Illinois area, and APAC poured money in and essentially supported uh, Dick Durbin's camp candidacy against Paul Finley. He later said it was a seven, there was essentially a 1,700-pound gorilla. Another one would be Congressman McClowski, Pete McClowski from California. Um, he was somebody who eventually lost his seat because of the Republican who lost his seat because of the influence of APAC. And then they've also been involved in Democratic primaries. For example, um, Cynthia McKinney in Georgia, who had said things very sympathetic to the Palestinians, um, eventually lost her seat to, um, Arthur da- to Arthur Davis, and a lot of the money was given with supporters of, of APAC. So it's not necessarily a partisan group in terms of Republicans, Democrats. It's a partisan group in terms of supporting the position of the Israeli government, and that includes Likud Conservative Party in Israel. But you do have some conservative uh, – you do have some – People who would be in, in, who would be American conservatives, who, for example, the perfect example would be someone right. like Pat Buchanan right. or the, the late journalist Robert, Robert Novak, who are right. conservatives on American terms, but they are very critical of the Israeli government Al- and the influence that APEC had. Right, Al- Alan Moore. Go let, ahead. Me, let me just make yeah. make one thing. At one point, Rich said APEC poured money in. APEC doesn't pour money in. They have a, a huge network of people that well, they have that, that they that they have influence on, and they can say, "Hey, we urge you to consider supporting this particular right, candidate right, or that particular right. candidate," and none of that would be very visible. But it's not a pack. It's it's a different kind of it's an a, organization. It's a misconception. But that's, but, but, but yes, it has right. a lot of influence, right. and it's able to move money. There is a it's a distinction that's that that, that I that I, I I just wanted to to make no, note that, of. That's correct. But, also worth but, noting at the national level, there were only two 
Republicans in the House that are Jewish. Uh, every other Jewish representative in either the House or the Senate is a Democrat. Okay. So the idea that somehow this <clears throat> means everything for the Jews is a misconception as well. So this is not, I mean, let's go for the Trump rhetoric here for a second. Trump saying that the Democratic Party is anti-Israel. Are you kidding me? It's just not true. And American Jews, while not necessarily the most, the, the, the most engaged in the ins and outs of Israeli politics, do tend to lean on the liberal side of things. Yep. And when push comes to shove with the details of the issues with Palestine and Israel, do tend to point out that, you know, the Palestinians might have a legitimate beef with how the Netanyahu government is choosing to govern over the is the Palestinian but Al, authority, uh, but Alan yeah. Moore, Alan Moore, ex explain to me though this interesting dynamic almost where we see uh, the the active. I, I mean, Trump's numbers amongst conservative Israelis is extremely high. Uh, we know about the the connection between Netanyahu and Trump. Uh, it, it seems to me that this is not necessarily a bad thing politically for the White House or, or for Trump, that there's no backlash. I mean, what what is it going to take for... Uh, I mean, I mean, this is, this is a prime minister that was welcomed with open arms and openly invited to speak in front of a joint session of Congress... And yet when two members of our Congress go over there, we I, I just think there's a hypocrisy going well, on. Well, I'd be careful about about how you want to characterize it. Remember, the, the two people we're talking about have been public supporters of the so-called BDS movement. Right. Let's boycott Israel. Let's remove investments that we have uh, against Israel. And let's sanction Israel. It's it it is. There are very few elected officials. I'm sorry, in Alan. If I could just interrupt for a second. Hold on, let, let him finish. Hold on, okay. Alan. 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 I mean, no, I'm, Dan. Disinvestment. Dan. Hold, me? hold on. Hold on. Let 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 it, him. It's what kind of disinvestment were you saying? A peaceful disinvestment. Fine. Not talking about taking out arms. No <laughs> disinvestment. Stop investing in companies that do business with Israel. The the if if if, if carried to an extreme, BDS could pose an existential threat to Israel. They are afraid of BDS. They are afraid of BDS catching on. They hate the fact like that— Like in South Africa. That, that it, well, and that, it, it's, it, the, the people who support it try to, 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 to link it to South Africa, which has got to be grotesquely offensive to the Israelis, to say, wait a minute. I agree. You're saying that apartheid— is equal to what w the, the struggles we're having here, f uh, you know, go away. It It, it is an Carter argument. It's an, it to apartheid. It, it's an argument. Well, fair enough. I'm just saying that, but Israel certainly doesn't. Um, and, and, and I think that 
but how we, often we, do the oppressors hold, hold define on. Let's, their, Dan, their work? Dan, 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 so Dan, Dan, so Dan, hold on, you, Dan, let, let, let Alan finish and I'll give we, you equal We can time. have another conversation at some other point about the, the comparisons between the treatment of the Palestinians by, by Israel and the treatment of African-Americans by the the. Uh, white government of South Africa. I think you'll find that that it's 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 a stretch, uh, but but that's a different conversation and it gets complicated. People are trying to make that parallel. But if you Back are, on this. but if you're Back Israel, if you're Israel, and you know there are two members of Congress who have visibility, and you think they're going to come here and and wander around, <laughs> they're not going to visit everybody. They're gonna they're going to focus here. The press is going to be following them, and they're going to make public statements. You worry about that, and and but to and, me that would you, make more you, sense to let them in and look like I agree the truly with you. Pure power. I agree with you. I'm not trying to say they did the right thing. I think they did the wrong thing, but they have an argument. And when you, the U.S. oftentimes in our history has denied entrance to people who have publicly been critical of America, or we back in the day we worried about communists coming, uh, writers' conferences saying no to people. Um, countries don't let people in all the time. I think it works against their interest. I think they should have let them in and let them. We let get Sinn Fein in. I was, despite uh, the, hold on, hold on, the Dan, 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 Dan. Let Alan finish. I got yeah. two minutes left, and, and then I'll give you a minute. For, no, I, we, we've said no, and then we've said yes. They've said I think they okay. should have said yes, but they had a basis, legal. And political to say no. I think ultimately it will be helpful to to Netanyahu to have done this, at least in the short term, unless he's perceived as being uh, uh, the puppet of Trump acting contrary to Israel interests. Right. I think he can win that argument. Yeah, but I, I do agree with Dan, though. I mean, you know, we banned uh, Sinn Fein, the IRA. <clears throat> We've banned them for years. Uh, now, arguably, Dan, there were many inside the U.S. government at the time that also considered the IRA a terrorist organization. So, right, and and we still these were not too terrorists. These were not too terrorists. Kennedy would would frequently meet with Sinn Fein. It was part of what accidentally got him added to the no-fly right. list. During the W administration. That's true, too. Anyway, with that in mind, uh, bottom line, uh, is there a blowback for the administration on this whole situation, Alan Moore? One word quick. No. Dan Lipner? It's not going to be good long term. The blowback is going to be in the history books of how horrendous this is going to move the U.S.-Israeli cooperation in the future. Rich Rubino? No, I concur. I concur with that completely. The the answer is no. It just hurts. Um, it hurts Trump, and it actually, in many respects, I think hurts. Um, it actually kind of, it actually hurts the Israeli government as well, specifically wow. the Likud party okay. and Yahoo. All right. Well, that's all the time we got this night. Uh, by the way, always always good to have uh, Charlie Bernie filling in for Rob, the engineer behind the glass. Charles, thank you as always. Always good to have you. Uh, special thanks also to Eric, our producer, doing producer type things. Uh, on behalf of Alan Moore, Dan Lipner, Rich Rubino, I am Justin Russell. We will see you for the next episode of the best political talk show you never heard of, Backroom Politics, which you can download as a podcast on your favorite podcast service, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Yeah, we're kind of a big deal. 
Have a great week, America.